As someone who began to sing and dance from a young age, Mazna Ismail had always dreamt of the fame and fortune of being a pop sensation. The year was 1987, and in the young nation of Malaysia, her future seemed ripe for the taking. It was during this time that she met a man named Muhammad Nur Afandi Abdul Rahman, who claimed to be the biggest admirer of her work and wanted to help her be the huge success she was striving to be. Not long after, the two were married and working hard to launch Masna's career. They were able to produce a self-sponsored album and made a few television appearances. But after several years, the pair gave up any hope they held that Masna's career would take off. Leaving her dream of stardom behind, she set off on another career path that would forever change the course of her life. A career in black magic. She would later be known widely by her stage name during her pop star days, a name that many Malaysians know, Mona Fendi. Welcome to Curious Tales, a podcast where we explore unexplained and strange stories in the region of Southeast Asia. It was as if Mona and Effendi had struck gold. Their careers as self-proclaimed witch doctors, or bomos as they're commonly called in the region, was turning out to be more lucrative than they were expecting. They were focusing their efforts into attracting clients that were part of the elite, wealthy class of society. And it was working. A number of these high-profile clients happened to be senior politicians, able to pay the exorbitant amounts of money the duo charged for their services. Experiencing this sudden elevation in status and wealth, Mona and Effendi would start spending their money on huge mansions and luxury cars. Business was booming. It wasn't long before their clients' demands would become more extensive though, and soon a man by the name of Mazlan Idris approached them looking for just that. An assemblyman in the Pahang state government, Mazlan was a rising star within his political party. He studied abroad in the United States in his early years, and was part of the ruling United Malays National Organization, or AMNO party at the time. Being ambitious as he was, Mazlan wanted the position of chief minister and was willing to make the sacrifices necessary to do so. He was willing to do whatever it took. Mona rubbed her chin and raised her eyebrow. This was going to be no easy task and would require some pretty strong magic. Fortunately, she knew of just the thing. Together with Effendi, the two promised to help Mazlan by giving him a talisman consisting of two objects, a walking stick or tongkat, and a traditional Malay headdress or songkok, both of which were said to have belonged to a former Prime Minister of Indonesia, President Sukarno. How would these items help him? Well, they would make him invincible, of course. For this power of invincibility, Mona demanded the sum of 2.5 million ringgit, or 1 million US dollars at the time. Mazlan, it seems, did not have a lot of cash on hand and only paid 500,000 ringgit up front while handing them 10 land titles of his as a guarantee for the rest. Mona and Effendi accepted the payment, inviting Mazlan to meet them at their home in the small town of Rao Pahang. He needed to be cleansed first for the talisman's power to take effect and a proper ritual was needed for that. When Mazlan arrived at the house, he was told to lie down on a raised platform in the kitchen 
while the couple and their assistant Jiraimi performed the Mandi Bunga or flower bath ceremony. Maslan closed his eyes, as instructed by Mona to do so, but never opened them again. The blade of an axe wielded by Jiraimi came down and severed Maslan's head from his body, decapitating him. Jiraimi spent the next few weeks alone in the house while Mona and Effendi journeyed to the capital Kuala Lumpur. Well, he wasn't completely alone. He stayed to hack up Maslan's body, probably to either reduce the risk of identification if anyone found it, or simply to make it easier to bury. Laying the pieces in a hole he dug in the adjoining room next to the main house, Jiraimi set about filling it with cement, effectively sealing away the horrible deed with no loose ends. He then tidied up the house and went on his way. After the brutal murder, life went on as usual for Mona and Effendi. The money they had received from Maslan was used to purchase another luxury car, jewelry, furniture, mobile phones, and other electronic devices. Mona even reportedly got herself a round of cosmetic surgery. At the same time, the police began to launch an investigation into the disappearance of Maslan after a member of Omno lodged a missing persons report. Leads on the case were scarce, until a twist of fate put them back on the trail once more. Mona and Effendi's assistant, Juraimi, was picked up by police for an unrelated drug offense, to which he confessed, probably still high on drugs, to his involvement with the disappearance of Assemblyman Maslan. He led investigators to the room, where he buried the body weeks earlier. The sound of crunching and banging filled the air as authorities dug up what was left of the crime scene. Stepping out of the police truck, Mona smiled widely to the press waiting for her. You and you and you, she chuckled. I know you. Don't think I've forgotten your names. Mona, Effendi, and Jiraimi appeared before a seven-person jury led by Judge Datuk Mokhtar Sidin at the Timurlo High Court. And although the three of them were being charged for the multiple murders that had been uncovered, including Maslan's, it was Mona that stole the spotlight. The draw was this mysterious and heavily made-up woman, who always wore a grin despite knowing her fate was sealed. Her mere presence spooked the public, yet fascinated them. The lore and superstition surrounding the case was obvious. One time on the way to the courtroom, a photographer accidentally brushed up against her. Mona, furious, spat at the man. Everyone froze as the man left everything he was carrying and sped off to the washroom, probably in fear of being hexed. At one point, the entire court team went to view the crime scene in Raub. The house featured several portraits of Mona hung on the walls, while jars containing oily substances, hair-like fibers, amulets, and other items believed to be ingredients used in black magic rituals sat upon a large shelf in the main hall. The stench of rotting flesh was in the air, while swarms of flies buzzed around. Another mysterious incident during the trial was that of a low, eerie moan, said to have filled the courtroom while a forensics expert was discussing the condition of Maslan's remains. Some feeling on edge looked around, trying to identify the source of the sound, while others immediately got up to leave in a hurry. 
In the year 1995, after two years on trial, Mona, Effendi, and Jeremy were charged with murder under Section 302 of the Malaysian Penal Code. It only took the seven-member jury just 70 minutes to reach a unanimous verdict of guilty against all three of them. In the years leading up to their execution, the rumors of their powers grew even more absurd. Tabloid media made claims that Mona and Effendi had the ability to walk in and out of jail as they pleased. Mona was said to levitate in her cell, while Effendi could get in and out of handcuffs and open cell doors. On the day of her execution in 2001, Mona Effendi spoke her last words before she hung from the gallows. I will never die. Thank you for listening to Curious Tales. This episode was researched and made by Ian Quack. If you would like to suggest peculiar and strange stories you might know within Southeast Asia, whether historical or present day, you can get in touch via Facebook or Instagram at The Curious Tales. Please subscribe to this podcast to continue to enjoy new stories. And we'll see you next time, as always, for another Curious Tale.